welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Welcome back. Welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense as we broadcast on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, oh, good Lord, Blueberry, and I don't even know what's out there anymore. Just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most disturbing you, Chick, and in by the skin of his chinny-chin-chin, <laughs> my courageous <laughs> and probably wet co-host Curtis C.S. Senate. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? I'm doing fine. As you probably know, I, I just got in from a luncheon. Um, it was a domestic violence um, appreciation um, luncheon for um, women who have been abused. On my off time, I sometimes work, work with the um, local police department in their um, victims advocacy program. So today was their annual luncheon. And they gave me an honorable mention and a certificate. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. And uh, you were a social worker uh, in one of your career paths, so you've got the knowledge to work with this. You know, one of the things I do, uh, you know, from the law enforcement side, I saw it from the law enforcement side mm-hmm. where you saw it for after we got handling the situation. Um, you use cell phones. I take it over to local sheriff's department, and they use them to donate to victims of domestic abuse so they have an emergency phone to call 911 when they need it. So, folks, if you're out there, you've got cell phones, donate it to make sure that your local police department has the ability first. Uh, But that's what I do. I take them over to the local sheriff. And we've got a couple of organizations. Uh, One of them is CAPA, where they help shelter the women and uh, other victims, children of uh, domestic abuse. And they use, they yeah. do this through uh, their thrift store. Uh, I always look for things like that. You know, it's true. Those of us are conservative. We don't wear our heart on our sleeve, but you know, folks, this is how you can help. And we don't have to turn around and brag about it. Like some major Hollywood star who probably gives <laughs> 1.1% of, you know, not even 0.1%. Point oh one or point oh oh one percent of their wealth, but here you give of your time, your heart, and your assets. So there's a lot of good things out there. But we got ourselves a great show here, Curtis. Two great guests returning. We've got Frank Miniter. We had him on recently. His just released book, Spies in Congress: Inside the Democratic Cover Up of Cyber yeah. Scandal. And we also have Gregory Wrightstone, as he always says, "I am his first, <laughs> his first radio interview." <laughs> Uh, actually, first media interview, 
uh, his book, Inconvenient Facts, is making the rounds. And recently he was attacked at it when he was trying to speak by Antifa. So we're going to be talking to him about that. A lot of going on. We have, I think the police have caught and arrested this nut job bomber. It's come up to now 12, I believe, bombs that have been sent around. None of them seems to be working bombs. None of them had an actual fuse, a detonation process, even though some of them were unstable. They have him in custody. Uh, Cesar Sayak, a guy that was originally from New York, from Florida. We can talk about that later on, too, because this is someone who had multiple felony charges against him, and the legal system failed the public. Catch wow. this again. The legal system failed the public. He was charged with multiple felonies dating back as far as 1999. And instead of facing a felony conviction, they gave him probation, not once, but several times. So you're going to hear a lot about this. The left is going to scream, oh, look at these terrible Trump followers because he had Trump stuff all over his van. They're going to yell, scream tear their hair out, wring their chest, rent their garments <laughs> in biblical fashion, turns around, it's a guy with a mental health problem, should never have been, uh, he should never have been given probation, he should have been evaluated for mental, he should never have been able to purchase guns. The system failed. The laws were in place, but they were not followed. Anyway, that's my rant for the morning. Those that listen to the show uh, know that we start off each and every one uh, with a dedication to a fallen hero. And Curtis, I got to tell you, uh, if I can, I try to reach out to the family or to the law enforcement department from which, or the military from which uh, this Mm -hmm. individual came. And uh, when I did the dedication to Deputy Sheriff Cole, uh, I had sent a message to his mom on her Facebook page and she finally Mm -hmm. saw it today. So, you know, it does matter. It matters to the family what we do here. And I think it uh, it means a lot to help keep their their memories and their sacrifice uh, in our minds that are never forgotten. Yeah. So you can tell I'm starting to break up already before I even start. Yeah. And, but I, and they, I know they appreciate it, the family. They appreciate what you do. Yeah. Well, today's dedication is going to go out to police officer Jesus Chue Cardova of the Nogoles Police Department of Arizona. His end of watch was Friday, April 27th of this year. And we start off with the posting from the Officer Down Memorial page. Police Officer Jesus Cordova was shot and killed while attempting to apprehend a carjacking suspect in the 2900 block of North Grand Avenue at approximately 2.45 p.m. on Friday, April 27th of this year. The subject had carjacked a vehicle in Patagonia and then fled from Santa Cruz County deputies into Nogoles, where he attempted to carjack another vehicle. Nogoles officers had responded to the attempted carjacking and located the suspect inside a car. Officers attempted a traffic stop. The man exited the vehicle and opened fire on Officer Cordova, who was still in his vehicle. Officer Cordova was struck multiple times. He was flown to a local hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. The man then fled the scene and carjacked a third vehicle. He was located a short time later and taken into custody. Officer Cordova had served with the Nogoles Police Department for one year 
and had previously served with the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Office for 10 years. He survived by his three children, an expectant fiance, who in fact was his wife. And this is by Raphael Carranza in the Republic out of ArizonaCentral.com. Hundreds of law enforcement officials, family members, friends, and community members showed their respect for slain Nogoles police officer, Office Chewy Cordova, during a vigil at the site where he was killed. Pieces of glass from his patrol car's shattered windows still littered the asphalt in front of Villa's Market, where Cordova had responded to reported carjacking. They reflected the light from dozens of veladoras, votive candles featuring religious icons and prayers, arranged in a makeshift memorial. Cordoba's wife thanked the community for the overwhelming support her family had received. The couple had been married for about six months, had three children, and were expecting another baby soon. If he could do it all over again, I know that he would because that's just who he was, Alyssa Cordova said, speaking publicly for the first time since her husband's death. He loved to serve. He loved to serve his people. He loved to serve his family. He loved to serve his community. At her request, friends and family donned blue shirts at the vigil so her husband wouldn't be remembered in black. A lifelong Nogola's resident, Jesus Cordova had been a law enforcement officer for more than a decade. He worked as a detective with the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office for 11 years before joining the Nogolas Police Department in 2017. He would always say that he wanted to be a police officer, Cordova's aunt, Gloria Salazar, said. And on Halloween and parties or anywhere, he always wanted to dress like that. Always. Her husband, Hector Salazar, proudly claimed that he was Cordova's favorite uncle, reminiscing about the times when the officer would sneak up behind him in his patrol car and spook him, and he described his nephew as a playful and good-natured. It's very painful to have lost him because he was a role model for everyone, he said. To all my nieces and nephews, he's the one I would always use as an example. Nagoa's police chief, Roy Bermudez, said Cordova's commitment to public service was evident in his final actions, which likely saved lives. His his car was parked here somewhere, where you guys are standing, Bermuda said. The individual came running to him. If Cordova hadn't been here, hadn't put his life on the line for our community, imagine if this individual would have gone into Villa's Market at 2.30 in the afternoon. After the vigil ended, Alyssa Cordova spent nearly an hour receiving condolences and good wishes from friends, relatives, and community members. I'm holding up, she told them. My support system is very strong, and I'm very grateful. As she approached the makeshift memorial filled with flowers and photos, though she broke down in tears, she said, Mia Moore, she sobbed. Why you? Why you? Today's show is dedicated to police officer Jesus Chewy Cordova. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, correction officers, firefighters, emergency services. 
We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military from the birth of this great nation through today and into its future. We dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one. Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio. Excuse me, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Blueberry, uh, iHeart, whatever. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, you're listening to the hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Wet Bennett. (laughs) Curtis, we got our, our... First victim of the day up on the line. I see. Uh, let's bring the let's bring the gentleman in. Let's welcome back to the show, uh, author uh, right. Hunter, author Man About Town. Uh, we're going to welcome aboard Frank Miniter, his latest book, Spies in Congress: Inside the Democratic Cover Up of Cyber Scandal. Good afternoon, Frank. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back again. Yeah, I, you know, I was going over my notes last night with you, and you know what? There's so much I missed talking to you the last time you were on, and I had fun because we've, we've done shows on misogyny, on the pussification, as Doug Giles says, of, of our male uh, culture here in the United States. But, man, I loved your take on it. I, I just sat there. I was laughing my, my, my tushy off, even though my husband said I'm losing it. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, man, how much more I could have talked to you the last time you were here with us. I missed a whole lot. Oh, come on. It was fun. <laughs> well, that it is. That it is. You know, um, 
I was watching this unfolding with the pipe bomb guy. And I'm thinking back because I was read a couple of things in your book just to refresh my memory. And how come all these things end up centering around Debbie, what's her name, Schultz? Why is it she always ends up in all this, the middle of all these things? What is it about this woman? She's like a magnet. <laughs> well, she's been a very obnoxious sort of person who put herself, uh, you know, she, I, you know, you could say she worked very hard, but she put herself at the head of the Democratic Party, um, and she got there and then ran the DNC, um, and was a pretty big deal until, you know, all the cards started to fall down because of just the way she played the game, um, let, letting a, uh, a a man who was running a team from from Pakistan, what I call a group of spies, in Congress uh, without background checks and just loud, letting them one nilly nilly around the halls of Congress. Um, as, as they copied all of her data and stole uh, merchandise from, from the House and did all sorts of other kind of crazy things that got, got swept under the rug by Congress recently, you know, it just it exposed her to a lot. I mean, it's, it, people forget that she uh, employed Imran Awan uh, as she ran the DNC, and she has said before that he had access to all of her devices, meaning all the passwords, everything. I mean, if I were going to look at who probably hacked the DNC and then lost her position and started her downfall, the first uh, suspect I would look to would be Imran Awan. Wow. You know, I'm just going to wonder, you know, when this investigation is all said and done, what is going to come up with this guy that they arrested today, Cesar uh, Sayak? Uh, turns out, catch this, they're calling him a Republican because he voted Republican in 2016, but he registered to vote Republican only 11 days prior to the election itself. Uh, do you think there's something going on here with this guy? Do you think he's a true nut job? Yeah, he sure sounds like it. I hope this deranged person doesn't affect this midterm election in any any real way. That would be just so unfortunate that somebody with this kind of character, this kind of lack of character, uh, would possibly affect such an important election. You know, well, as I was putting out before, you know, we went into our dedication today, uh, some of the things I was catching on the news just before. He had multiple felony arrests, but never the felony conviction. He always pleaded down to probation. Now, wait a minute. Wait. A, federal, a felony is a very serious crime. I mean, he beat up his mom. Really? You know, what, what, what type of man beats up his own mother? And he gets, he gets arrested for a felony, but oh, lo and behold, the judge feels sorry for him and gives him probation. And it happened not once. It happened more than once. Each time the felony put down to probation. So that's a failure of the system. Now, obviously, if he, he's known to law enforcement. Uh, he's obviously they know he's a nut job. He knows that he's made several th threats. Why isn't there a mental health warrant out on this guy? Why was he allowed to walk around free uh, without a mental evaluation and purchase firearms? Again, a second failure of the system. And yet they want to blame Trump on it. I blame the failure of the system. Yeah, in, in that respect, again and again, with, with all these perpetrators, including uh, mass, mass killers, uh, mass murderers, um, and I don't like them called mass shooters. They're mass murderers. Um, you look at their, their profiles, and they were, again and again, they should have been stopped uh, by FBI or local law enforcement or even cops inside of schools who, who didn't do their jobs and, and just let the thing slide continually, which is a liberal idea of continued reform by letting the guy, give the guy all the kind of room and chances. No, there, there are things you have to do in order to stop these kind of bad guys. They're giving you those kinds of signs. You do have to let those red flags actually mean something and actually adjudicate that process. And, you know, Imran Awan and this thing, he gets off 
100% completely after running aspiring in Congress. Uh, you know, no jail time, no restitution. Um, he was even exonerated in, in that report uh, put out by the DOJ, the, the plea deal agreement. Um, so it, it, right there, it leaves the door open to someone else to also do the same thing. And we saw just uh, last or a couple of weeks ago, um, a, a person went into a senatorial office. He used to be an intern there, uh, sat at the computer, no one stopped him, and just started downloading data that he then put up on Wikipedia pages. Now, he's been arrested for that now and is being charged, but they're just, they're just so completely wide open because they haven't dealt with this kind of situation in, 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 a, well, in a smart way. Yeah, you just mentioned the arrest of uh, Jackson uh, Costco. I didn't understand what doxing was. Doxing is when you take someone's information and put, put it up on Wikipedia? Uh, for, a, for a public official or something that's illegal, right? you're taking that information. You're not allowed to put their address and, and other personal information there for people to, to possibly use in a bad way. <laughs> Man, it, 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 it is so dysfunctional, Congress, absolutely dysfunctional. And as you write and talk about, no one has ever said whether or not they fixed the system. Are we still losing valuable intel over and over again? Well, it's kind of awesome in a way. I remember 20 years ago when I was a young reporter walking into some of those buildings, Rayburn and Longworth and stuff in, in Congress, and I was just wide open there. You walk, you walk, you go through one metal detector, and you're inside, and you're looking in the doorways. You'll literally see congressmen sitting there. You can walk right up and try to talk to them, meet them in the hall. It, it's so wide open, it almost feels small townish. Well, and that's great in a way, uh, but in this modern world, they have to catch up with the times. And I'm not saying they have to put all sorts of locks and barriers, but when it comes to their system, uh, they, they certainly do. Uh, the insider threats that have affected them, uh, this recent individual or Imran Awan and his team, um, and many others that have been, uh, that have been adjudicated, uh, that Congress has thrown off the system in the past, uh, they have to actually tighten up this system. But congressmen don't want the light shined on them and their staff and their power and the way they, they control things, the way they do things uh, with a real investigation and open kind of debate about what they should be. Well, you know, I, I got to bring up one of my favorite people <laughs> because I believe today is her birthday. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, two years ago, uh, talk about how lonely and desperate you are. She ended up posting a picture of herself uh, as a child and the caption was, you know, happy birthday to the future president of the United States. Guess who I'm talking about? <laughs> That's Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Someone posted it, and this is this is the gift that just keeps on giving. And she just recently, quote, gave up her clearance, her security clearance. Uh, but do you think there's a political motivation between that? Do you think she's going to try to make? Oh no, wait, wait, wait! I shouldn't even answer it. It's a redundant question. She's making a run for 2020. Well, he's certainly uh, thinking about that. And, right, that was a proactive measure on her part because uh, the Trump administration had started to pull back some clearances from people who had become CNN pundits and that kind of thing. And why should you still have a security clearance of the federal government when you, all you are is a pundit for CNN? I do. They really use her? I, then again, you know, that, that's the fun, funny thing about it. it, it because you have a security clearance, you can't just walk into any building you want. I have a clearance and, and be given access to all this information. There has to be a need to know back and forth. But because you have a security clearance, this, there's, there's a gray area you walk into where somebody then can work with you. So they can come to you with questions and have you sit down at certain meetings and, and, and things. It's unlikely the Trump administration would do that. But would another official who was appointed by, say, Obama, uh, then reach out to Clinton in that kind of way under the cover of, of the fact that she has a security clearance? Absolutely, that could happen. Um, so should she have a security clearance on those grounds so she could go against the, the new administration? I think that's just ridiculous. Yeah, uh, people are asking about the uh, Hillary uh, picture. It's up on my personal Facebook page, so if you go to Ann Ubellis, scroll down to w what someone had um, 
posted, and it's it's funny. It really is funny. She takes a picture of herself. I guess she's about maybe eight or nine or whatever. I got a similar uh, pose of myself about that age, and it's just too hysterical. Uh, I, I I could not let that one go. Well, you should put it next to a photo of her from that night uh, in 2016 in November uh, when she lost the election. That would be just interesting to see both expressions. Oh, what a great mime. Oh, by the way, speaking of mimes, folks, this is this is what uh, Facebook is now going to do. They're going to fact check your mimes. So if you put a mime out pulled out by Facebook, they may not agree with it. This is how desperate the, the left has become, Frank. Well, when they start editorializing like they are now in these decisions they're making, they become publications, not just a, w- a wireless network or as they want to be treated legally. That, that's a big different classification. Then they're in danger, in my, my opinion, I think a legal opinion, of then being regulated um, as a publication must, of uh, having to be open about where they are and so on. Um, you know, as much money as they splash around in, inside the beltway, you know, maybe they'll, they'll stay free of that for a while. But if they continue down this road, absolutely, that, that regulation is coming their way. Frank. It is. It is. And go ahead, Curtis. Yeah. It took them years to um, to find out who the Unabomber was. It took them a couple of days to, to probably catch up to this guy, if he's indeed the one who perpetrated these acts. But the thing is, do you think it's because we have better um, intelligence and better techniques today, crime techniques? Or do you think it's because um, Ted Kaczynski had an IQ of 165, and this guy here obviously had an IQ maybe 90? I, I think I mean, it's got to be both. You, you talk to FBI, CIA, and, and I know some of the analysts. Uh, it's incredible what they have at their fingertips. Now, it's actually really scary. You know, Luckily, most of these people, not the political pointees, but when you meet the, the rank and file of them, they're great people, and it makes you feel better about what they're doing because the powers they have now through just because the network world we live in is just incredible. Yeah, having the law enforcement background, I can tell there's several things he did. I mean, he's mailing packages to congressional uh, members. Uh, it doesn't go through the normal mailroom. It goes through a separate sorting facility specifically to look for strange envelopes. The quickest way you can write to your senator or congressman is put it on a postcard. That will, is the only mail that will go directly onto the desk. Everything goes through a sorting center, and it goes through machines that will sniff it out like a dog. They also have dogs on premises. But, you know, it, it's, he had set these bombs up in such a manner that he just gave himself away. You use electrical tape, that leaves fingerprints. I mean, you, the bomb can blow up. But yet those little fragments, those little pieces of electrical tape, just some reason just do not get destroyed. And fingerprints are kept. And it seems that may be the way in which they got it. And he was no bomb expert, obviously, from what they were, they were finding. You, know, you build 12 bombs and not one goes off. Something's wrong here. So the question yeah, is, that's is that's he really hopefully it was all a big joke. You know, hopefully he didn't really make bombs. He used Play-Doh or something. Um, and, it, and it was a political stunt on his part. I just, you know, just nobody gets hurt. Um, but right, he just sounds like a complete buffoon. Yeah, you know, the, the, he, they said they he had used black powder, which you can get. You go into any store and you can buy ammunition. You can buy black powder to make your own ammunition. But what he also did was he printed the labels off of his computer printer. Hello, folks. Here's a little hint. <laughs> I knew back in NYPD back in the late 80s, early 90s, there were serial numbers on your computer printers as well as copy machines. So – 
supposedly, if there's a recall, they can go back and say, all right, this is the serial number. These are the documents that are coming off wrong. It's also a method for police to track where a document comes from. They track it back to the manufacturer. The manufacturer goes to the store. The store goes to, oh, this receipt at 3.30 in the afternoon on Tuesday was sold to Jane Blow. It is a tracking mechanism that has been in place since the late 80s, early 90s. And he did the dumbest thing in the world, was printed off in block letters and taped it And, of course, I'm sure Whoa. that tape that was on the package yeah. had his fingerprints and DNA on it. He did every single thing wrong, and I'm surprised it took him four days to find him. From what I know, Annie, um, even the paper you, you print on, the, today's copy it has on it. Encode it and encode something on that paper. You don't see it, but they they know how. No, to that's retreat. what I'm talking about. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Every single piece of paper you print off will have a code on it identifying yeah. the machine that that paper came from. Mm-hmm. Well, also and, I I use black powder because I I shoot. You know, I use a muzzle loader, um, and it's hard to, to contain that and and get all the black powder to go off in the in the time that you want it to go off to push the. I mean, it's just a little bit of black powder in a, in a rifle barrel and a muzzle loader's barrel to get that bullet to go out the end. Uh, but to get a, a lot of black powder to blow up in a bomb, um, all the same. Most of it's just going to burn. It's not actually going to blow up. It's actually a, a very stupid thing to use in a bomb. Yeah, and, and Kel's asking the question in the check room, how did the post office slip up 11 times? The post office did not slip up. It was the postal inspectors that found these packages before they reached the destination. As I understand it, the only one that came anywhere close to reaching its destination was the one with George Soros, but he had his own security that sorted his mail before he got it. So Soros' security got the, the, the device before it went towards him. But the post office did their job. And those postal inspectors and the post, postal police are good people. They do a hard job there. So I've got to commend them on that. All right. So I don't even know where to keep on. I've got notes all over the place. I was up last night. They're doing construction in my house, so it's hard to think or talk. Um, but right now I chased him out and I says, the radio, you're out of here. So I'm looking at my notes to talk about what we, were, we wanted to talk about. And I want to talk about some of your other books, like I said, because of the misogyny um, that is going on. Because you have one that's called uh, Kill Big Brother on how to be survive, safe with our devices today. But you also have the Ultimate Man's Survival Guide. And I had a laugh when you talk about you know today's metrosexuals, and they drive me nuts. They really, really do. And people say, well, that's what women want. They're sensitive. But that's not what real women want, do they? No. I'm actually working on a new office guy that will be out next year for men to deal with this Me Too movement. So I've been interviewing a lot of women, especially women are the, are the ones to interview on this kind of topic. Uh, and they tell me again and again, I don't want this metrosexual guy. He has no values. He's a cat. I can't trust him. His ethics are all over the place. He's not a stand-up person. He can't help me in any kind of uh, crisis. He, he just, he's useless, and I, he's pathetic, and I don't respect him. That's not what I want. I want that stand-up gentleman, that guy who's going to honor me, protect me, uh, be there for me in, in every which way. And I just hear that again and again from women of all political affiliations. That's true. I mean, if you have, and you mentioned, <laughs> I had a laugh in your article about the, the uh, burglar breaking in the house, and the husband goes running up the stairs, hides behind the door, and tells his wife to dial 911. No, I want my husband to pick up that baseball bat, <laughs> but then again, I'd be having my firearm right at his side, and, and say, wait a minute, this is my home. You're not advancing one foot further. 
you know, you want someone to defend you. It, it takes a long time for police to respond. And I tell you, uh, average response time in New York City is approximately seven minutes. A lot can happen in those seven minutes. And as you said, who do you want the 12 to carry, you or the bad guy? Right, and rarely it's more it's often 30 minutes, depending where you are, uh, for the police to get there. Um, so you have to protect yourself at some level for, for a certain period of time. And manning up and being that guy is, is, is just so critically important. It doesn't always have to be a life or death thing. It could just be changing a flat tire. I mean, you totally lose your man card if you get a flat tire, right? You, you can't get AA on the phone or something. There you are in the middle of nowhere, um, and you're telling your wife, um, well, we're going to have to wait, or can you do it, or something like that. Uh, it's just completely ridiculous. You have, to be, you have to have those skills and have the gumption to get out there and take care of that problem. You know, I, God bless my dad. He's passed away now five years. But one of the first things he did, and I'm one of four kids. It was two boys, two girls. And the first thing he said, because he knew that I, I was, I had talent. I had knowledge. I, he showed me something I could use to pick it up, whether it was electrical, woodworking, uh, plumbing, whatever. I could pick it up. I'm not an expert in any of them, but I can handle myself basically for some basic things. And he had me uh, change the oil, file and regap the spark plugs, align the headlights, and rotate the tires before I even got behind the wheel for my first driving lesson. And it helped me. You know, here's a a dad who, and my dad could help me work on the car. My dad could cook. He he was a very talented uh, uh, electrician. Matter of fact, when your stereos came out with woofers, tweeters, different tone arms, it was my father that developed most of that stuff. The straight on tone arms, I could, turn around and talk stereo and high fidelity with some of the experts because he showed me. I'd go to the shows with him. He was a very all-around male that you talk about. But one of the things he could do also, he came home one day with the libretto to La Scala, and he sat down with me on the couch and listened to it. He and I can sit down and watch the Muppets or listen to an opera. Men can't do today. Yeah, it's true. And, and honestly, I, I, I hunt. You know, I just actually just killed a deer the other day and, and put the venison in my freezer and, and enjoying it. But I also I'll go to Broadway and I love a musical. Um, I think that a guy should be well-rounded. And I think it's, it's a mistake today uh, that, that people misassume. And, and we treat this machoism as if it's just a tough guy being tough and, and stepping on people and being just an awful kind of person. No, that, like that tough guy, that, that, that stoic guy, he's that way for a reason. So he can keep his head in a crisis and be there to help you. The guy with the gentlemanly code is more likely to be the tough guy. What I tell people is that it's reality that actually grows people up, you know, dealing with real things. And it, it's those things that actually often make people into a conservative. There's a reason why uh, red America tends to be more rural and blue America more urban. And in rural America, you have to deal with more real things. And it might be literally on a farm dealing with livestock, or it just might be dealing with the snow in your driveway and the deer eating your garden and all this kind of reality that you have to confront constantly. Those things grow people up and make them into real stand-up kind of people that have to then deal with themselves in this, this physical role instead of having someone else taking care of them. So that's the basic reason why Red and Blue America has formed where it has. Uh, A lot of times Blue America and these these metrosexuals we have just aren't really facing up to what a man should, to the reality uh, that they're living in. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, women think that, you know, you have to be be sort of like a, a butch in order to meet and match a man. And you also talk about uh, 
where women are complaining about men keeping them down. A real man will not prevent a woman from advancing because she sh- he shouldn't be afraid of her. He should be able to look at that no, if he's, woman. If he's afraid of her, if he has to put down women in order to prop up his own ego, he's way too insecure to be a real man. You know, if a woman wants real power over a man, don't, don't butch up. Go the opposite way. Be, be even more feminine. Talking about taking, he's going to want to help. He's going to do everything for you. Uh, he's going to be there fighting for you. He, that, that disarms him in those ways you're, that you you're really get, need to disarm him. Um, and you can actually play him. I mean, women do that very well, the ones who know how to use their femininity. But, uh, yeah, don't, don't go the opposite direction. Go towards your, your natural, who, who you are. Well, this, I used to manage a law firm, a mid-sized law firm in Great Neck, uh, in the area they called the Miracle Mile in Great Neck. And uh, I went in there as the senior partner's executive assistant. Basically, I was a fancy title for office manager. And there was a gentleman who was in charge of the collections department. And he always felt threatened by me. And he would do things behind my back just to try to whittle down and put me down and say, like, I've got better power than you. And at one point, he went after one of my file clerks, and I just put my foot down. I said, that's it. I've had enough. You leave my people alone. If you've got a problem, you come directly to me. Don't go running to the boss. Don't go running to someone else to tattletale. You've got a problem. You face me one-on-one. Otherwise, you're going to need my permission before I let another file clerk walk into your department. And I walked away. And my boss, I did not know, had overheard me. And he pulled me aside into his office and goes, why didn't you tell me you were having a problem with so-and-so? And I said, you hired me to do a certain job. If I can't do it, why, what good am I to you and to this firm? I'm just nothing more than a paper doll to you then. I need to be handled, my people and my fellow co-heads of their department, one-on-one without you interfering. And from that moment on, the guy that was harassing me, he bought me a unicorn coffee mug. He would bring me cookies. <laughs> But, you know, don't be afraid to stand up, but don't, don't do it in such a manner that it, it takes away, as you said, your femininity. One of my favorite things I used to love to say when I donned the NYPD uniform, I may be a cop, but I still am a lady. You can't, wow. you can't separate the two from who you are. Yeah, it sounds like you're really raised right. I mean, you already mentioned your father. and just Wow, you were given the right things early. Now, my mom made sure we were independent, too, and she's 86. Mm. God bless her. So uh, we got a caller coming in on the line. Let me bring this caller in. And it looks like it's a Skype caller. You're here listening to Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie Ubellis, my co-host, Curtis B.S. Bennett. Our guest is Frank Miniter, the author of Spies in Congress. To whom am I speaking? Yes, this is Mike from Singapore. How about you, dear? I, I talked to hi, you before. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. How are you doing yes, today? Yes. Do you have a question or comment for our Th- guest? Yes. Can, uh, can, uh, I think your uh, guest is uh, working law enforcement, right? No, no, I'm an author. No. I've never been a police officer. Oh, you are an author. Okay. What is your uh, take on all this pipe bombs they have sent and they have arrested already the guy today? Uh, uh, the person who this, uh, who is in charge, um, uh, he's the Miss Sayok, and uh, so what do you think of that, please? Do you think it was forceful like oppression, or it was uh, really it was a bomb? Yeah, I don't I don't know if there were really uh, bombs yet. I, don't, I haven't seen enough data on that, but I, I I'm just hoping that that. 
other people don't try to copycat this individual and that this individual has every possibility uh, law thrown against him to, to stop this behavior and put him away. And it's, um, and, I, and I've seen both sides of the aisle in this case uh, condemn it, um, and I certainly do. It, this is disgusting. It shouldn't happen in America, and it shouldn't happen even in Afghanistan or anywhere. This is, this is not how people should behave. Thank you very much, Mike. For the, thank you for the call, Mike. All right. Mike calls into our show every now and then. He also calls in a couple other shows, too. Uh, but I wanted to address this because the hypocrisy that I saw, because when it was the, the, attack, the left attacking, the Antifa attacking conservatives, Republicans, representatives, senators, Mitch McConnell, uh, you had the um, uh, Candace Owens uh, was being attacked. No, no, that was perfectly fine. And you had Maxine Waters double down. Get in their face, Nancy Pelosi, double down. It was okay for that to happen. But all of a sudden it happens to them, and it's like, oh, no, we're, we need a civil conversation. What changed? Yeah, well, the left lost is what changed. Uh, and they're acting like uh, children about it uh, because that, unfortunately, is, is when you kill honor, and then they, they've killed honor in their party, um, this is what you get. You, you get a, a bunch of children. It's, you see it on college campuses uh, when a conservative speaker comes, and you, you see it all the way up to the top now in their politics. They're all responding to it, and this is how, unfortunately, they're behaving. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't – I don't know about you. I wouldn't have a problem with it if, if someone went to sit in a – in a, in a restaurant somewhere, and the owner of the restaurant didn't like that, the politics of that person, it's private property, went up to him, I just, you know, I don't agree with you, and I'd like you to leave, um, did it quietly. I, you know, I would maybe disagree with his political stance, but okay, that's his right, it's his, his or her property, and so on. Um, but when activists come in to, to an establishment and just start screaming at somebody and juvenilely chasing them away, then something has really changed and something is really wrong. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's funny because... Uh, we used to frequent a restaurant locally here, and the owner was very pro-military. I'm in the heart of the tri-command. If you're not pro-military, you do not belong living here, honestly, because you spit and you're going to hit a Marine or a Navy guy. Uh, but this one couple came in with their children, and there was a sign on the door saying, we support our troops. And they went into a tirade about the war in Iraq, and it was just shortly after Bush had gone into Iraq in 2003. And they started to go into a tirade. The staff went up to them and said, at this point, we don't want you in here because these men and women that volunteered in the military are not responsible for the policies of our government. How dare you not support these men and women that are our brothers, our sisters, our fathers, our uncles, our children? How dare you? We don't want you in here. And you're right. The owner should be able to say that. Yeah, it's private property uh, at that point. If the person is causing trouble like that in that establishment, yeah, especially if they did a cordially, gentlemanly way, uh, you know, I respect you, but I ask you to leave. I, I think a gentleman can behave that way. Uh, but yeah, screaming at somebody and causing this juvenile kinds of issues that we have, especially conservative speakers being chased out of, out of our universities, our public universities, uh, it's just, it's so horrendous. And, I, and it's time the left actually stood up to that. And, you know, parts of them are, you know, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Haidt. There's others on, on the left that um, have stood up to some of that, but you don't unfortunately see enough of it. Frank. No, but you just, go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> well, my question is going to take you in another direction, but. I was just wondering what you thought of Megan Kelly and what's behind her downfall. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I don't know why she wasn't savvy enough not to bring up the blackface thing and and yeah. go there with the, the in Halloween costumes. She's she's a smart lady. I used to enjoy her Fox show. Um, she went off the deep end when it came to Trump, and it got pretty personal and and awful. And then she went when she went. And it, to see her go down like this, I, I just think she. I'm just surprised because I thought she was much smarter than this. And if this does show a, a racism that that is in her, and I and that's what Atlantic is saying today um, by quoting her from different parts. You know, I I've never seen that. And it, uh, but I guess if you cherry pick certain things, maybe you could say that she's been hiding a certain kind of racism all these years. I think she just did something very politically incorrect, um, but kind of stupid given the audience she, she was and the, and, the, and the tone right now of this country. I don't know why she went there. It wasn't even funny. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was it, it, considering, like you said, the, the temperature of our climate, our environment, our politics right now. It was one of the dumbest things to say. But sometimes you've got the camera in your face, and you're thinking of something to say, and one of the dumbest things that comes into your mind drops in, and before you even think, your mouth is open and you're saying it. And I think it was one of those blonde moments, honestly. <laughs> it, it might be, you know. I, I, you know, I've done enough of this stuff, and I do have to be careful sometimes where a narrative starts to take you. Um, right? Sometimes, it, especially within context of things, you have to constantly measure your words before you speak them, because the, the context that you're saying it in can be misinterpreted and used against you very quickly and easily. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I'm going to take you in a little bit of a different direction because this this was a story that you wrote about, and I was hysterical, and I could imagine. <laughs> myself pulling something like this on someone uh you were at a banquet or dinner or something like that and the woman you were sitting next to was a vegan and she was carrying on about you being an avid hunter and you know all these other things and you got her real good you got to tell that story it's got to come from you can't come from me Oh, no, yeah, and I'd ordered, you know, a steak, and, and she had her salad, and uh, she looked at me and said, I'm above all that killing, and I just eat salad. So I told her there was blood on her vegetables, um, so she started to lose it. So I, I told her to ask the waiter if, if she, just to make sure that all of her vegetables came from no animal killing farms, the USDA designated no animal killing farms. So she, she calls over the waiter, and she asks him, did these vegetables come from USDA designated no animal killing farms? And the waiter's just totally flummoxed. She has no idea how to answer this question. What is she talking about? No animal killing farms. They don't exist. Every farm has to protect its vegetables. This is, this is just life. You know, this is the world, the ecosystems we live in. Um, so she finally turns to me, and I'm laughing, and she knows it's all a big joke. And I, I said, you know, I've got to apologize to you because I, I just got you. I was just kidding. There's no such thing because there is no farm that, that doesn't have to control deer or geese or mice, something that's going to depredate on those crops. So every farmer does have blood on his hands, and there's blood on your vegetables because that's the world we live in. That's the reality we live in. Um, so, so wake up to it. It's, it I, and I wrote that in the context that it's unfortunate that hunters are treated like they are too often, especially on the left side of, of politics today, and, and environmentalists especially. Because it's just so duplicitous. Hunters do so much for conservation in this country. They, they, they fund most of it. They control wildlife populations. They save flora and fauna from, from going extinct. Actually, every animal with a hunting season on it is actually increased in number after the season was placed on it because we're controlling it scientifically and using hunters. to do. I mean, it's just a great system that works. Um, but you see it just destroyed, uh, downgraded, I mean, just attacked uh, by the left, and especially environmentalists, and especially on the left. Um, and it just, it, that bothers me because it's just so basic. There is blood on your vegetables. Yeah, it's funny because because of the hunters, because of the way we have now entered this, uh, you're right. Wildlife has actually increased. And sadly, uh, I had to go out to uh, uh, Bluffton for uh, my husband, take my husband out for an MRI yesterday. And it's a 45-minute ride. 
And because mankind has encroached upon Mother Nature so much, I counted seven deer on the side of the road, seven dead deer. And we need to preserve the wildlife, you know, parks and everything. Uh, it's, really, it's really important. And it's funny because I just got my issue in Garden and Guns. Yes, there's a, there's a magazine out there called Garden and Guns. And I complained that there's not enough guns in the book of Garden and Guns. And it was talking about the North Carolina Atta Banks Park and how hunting has helped revitalize the wildlife. And people don't understand that hunting and conversation I can't even say the word. Conservation do go hand in hand. It's a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, they become a constituency fighting for each each species, each member, each deer, grouse, quail, ducks, whatever. And they, in fact, they form conservation groups fighting for each one of those species. But they go and lobby for all those species to control them and keep them healthy. And if there are too many deer, it bothers hunters for a lot of reasons. For example, they, they'll overbrowse the habitat they're in and the, the bucks won't get as big of antlers because they're not getting as much nutrition. So it's a big deal for hunters actually when they have a property to control that deer population. Often they'll work with the state to come in and say, okay, we'll do a study. Okay, this is the many deer you have. We'll give this many uh, tags to kill this many female deer to really lower the deer population to get it more in line with its habitat. And that's what the hunter wants for his own selfish reasons of wanting to sh- maybe shoot bigger deer. But, th- but it all works to help the ecosystem in the end. It's, it's all very beneficial to the habitat, the plant species that it might be eaten up. But also all these small game species that actually vanish if, if deer are able to eat away the uh, landscape, eat away, there comes a browse line so there's no vegetation below eight feet or so, you end up with rabbits and, and grouse and all these uh, ground nesting songbirds that all just disappear in that kind of environment. And the predators disappear because those, those prey populations disappear. The whole uh, ecosystem gets massively affected if you don't control the deer population. It's just one example of, of what hunters do for conservation and the environment. Yeah, it's, it's funny because uh, I have a, I'm going to call her a crazy la- neighbor, uh, but we're friends now. Uh, but one day she decided that on the corner, because I'm on a corner piece property, it was getting overgrown with grapevines and everything else. But I let it go because it's an area we, of our property we don't use. And I know it's a huge bird habitat and a snake habitat <laughs> because the snakes there, I'm not particularly interested in going unless I'm wearing my boots. Um, and she wanted to put flowers on the corner. She thought it would look prettier than having this wild overgrowth. She got in there. She destroyed the habitat going in, and it's just now starting to come back. You know, maintaining a habitat, you know, sometimes you have to go in and clean some of it out to prevent forest fires or to prevent the overgrowth and to maintain the habitat. But this is where hunting and conservation go hand in hand. You know, you may look nice to go and put a bunch of petunias on the corner, but how does that help the local wildlife? Well, what often happens is the deer walks out at night and eats all those flowers, and you wake up in the morning and the flowers are gone, and you're, <laughs> you're wondering what happened and why. And, and then, you, you know, this person still doesn't want to control the deer pipe. I mean, I live 100 miles north of New York City, and my, my neighbors moved there a couple, a couple of years ago um, from Brooklyn, um, who were completely anti-hunting. In fact, they called the police the first day in their new home because they heard Bill shooting on the other side of the woodlot about a half mile away where he put in his own sporting clays course, and he likes to shoot. Well, they thought there was literally a shootout going on over there. So they call the police. The cop shows up, and he listens to the shooting. He goes, oh, that's just Bill. He likes to shoot. Welcome to the country and leaves. 
You know, this, this is the reality check that people run into when they actually run into nature, into the environment. And I'm, I'm talking to them and trying to tell them about the deer herd on their property and how Lyme disease, we have Lyme disease is a big issue here. It, it's coming. Their kids have already had it. Um, how to slow this down, what to do about it. And it, it. You have to control the deer population for all these factors I've already mentioned. Uh, but they're, they're starting to wake up to the reality of it, but it's, it's going to take, well, I think, a couple more years. Yeah, because we occasionally get deer on our property over here because my backyard's a uh, fallow golf course and the guy let it go. You know, and what I did was I put bars of Irish Spring around the edge of it because we're in an area where, you know, neighbors are pretty close. So if I were to fire a gun, it most likely is going to hit someone's house, and I'm not going to do that. But, you know, I found Irish Spring kept the deers, you know, enough away so that we don't have to worry about, you know, the uh, deer tick and uh, Lyme disease. But it's knowing nature. And knowing how to deal with it. And this is a lot of things. You talk about one story about a father and son that got lost in the woods. And one of the first things my dad did was, what side of the tree is north? Okay, all right, (laughs) what direction did you come from? And my father's not a woodsman. He's not. But he said, this is the basic things they teach in Boy Scouts, and you should know it too. Yeah, I wrote about that, and that, that individual... Um, you know, it's not far from New York. It's in the Schwangunk Forest there, um, but it's it's a pretty big forest. And, and he was completely. It's getting dark, and he's lost with his son, and uh, completely lost his man card at that point. He he walked off and, and didn't, you know, he didn't have cell service down in the valley he was in, and just completely lost his bearings. Didn't know what to do, and was was in a complete panic. Um, was was about to spend the whole night in the woods, and there's a lot of cliffs out there, so who knows what would happen to them if I didn't come across them. But I found them, and and I, and I as nicely as I could directed him back and gave him a few tips on how to use a compass and that kind of thing so he could in the future not not lose his man card that badly because you know we things do happen you know hurricanes come we lose power things happen in life and and a guy does have to be prepared for these kinds of things or if if you're not you're gonna end up like that poor poor guy and that's preparedness is something else that's really really important and you see the commercials for preppers and everything else and i'm telling you my grandmother taught me how to can so i've got a second refrigerator Actually, I've got two additional freezers, the deep freeze and the refrigerator freezer, and it's all full of stuff. And when Matthew came here, we did not bug out. I got six cats. There's no way I'm leaving with six cats. You try to herd six cats. It ain't going to happen. So we hunkered down. We had food. We had water. Um, we had fuel. Uh, and we were able to plug in the TVs. We had TV goes. We had the news. We had refrigerator and one of the freezers constantly going we were able to cook food we had neighbors down the street that had nothing to eat and we were able to have them come on over and eat we had people that didn't even have candles in their house the simple things to survive a storm we had enough medications to last us a full month and a half in case you know i didn't have my heart pills but we had everything and it's not hard to stock up and know what to stock up and this is one of the things you talk about if a storm hits and you're stuck at home and you lose power, what do you do? Right. And having that basic knowledge takes away the fear. If you know what to do, that's the biggest part about fear is not knowing what to do. That's when people get really scared. But if you have a plan, you have some idea what to do, the fear alleviates and you start to come calm. And as you become calm, you start to think and you start to think and you come up with rational decisions instead of possibly putting your family in more peril. I remember during Katrina, I was actually in Finland, and I was watching European TV. I was on a business trip over there, and all they were talking about, well, now maybe the Americans are going to find out they actually need their government. They need their government to come protect them and save them and do all these things for them. And I kept telling them, no, uh, you know, I'm not against government. There's important roles for government, but Americans go and help each other. This is what we do. 
Um, and, and that's, that's pretty much what happens in all of these kinds of big storms is, is some people do man up and they go and they help each other. And I think that's just a beautiful thing. And that's a big part of the reason why there's such a practicality still in this country. Yeah, well, the important thing is a community. We used to be, as you talked about, a tribal. How many people out there actually know who their next-door neighbor is? Who is the person that lives across the street? Have you ever had a conversation with them? Do you know what they do? Do you know who they are? The closer you get to cities, the less you find people know who their neighbors are. Yeah, I I have to say, you know, sometimes I'm guilty of it by not paying too much attention, but, you know, when it came with one of the big storms coming through, I'm looking up and down the street. The only place that had any light coming out of it was our house and a neighbor across the street who happens to be a Marine. And I started knocking on doors with candles. I said, do you have at least candles to light up? I said, if you need, if, if you're worried about it, we've got extra freezer space. If you want to bring some food over, we'll hold it for you. You know, if you want to sit down, we're going to make something to eat. Come on over, we'll have a bite to eat. But that's what the community has to do. And we don't do this anymore. Well, I actually have a question for you, given all that we're talking about. Um, in this, this new Me Too time, this new Me Too era, I mean, how, how does a guy still be the guy you, you want him to be, obviously, and that he should want to be, uh, still given all that he's, he's told now about toxic masculinity and everything else? That is a very good question. How do they? Carry a body you can. Know, um, <laughs> yeah, good idea. The new cop can they advertise on TV. But it, it may end up coming down to that, where you may end up having to take, you know, a video of what the conversation is or whoever it is that, you know, is going to make the allegation. You know, we've, I've spoken to mothers that said they're afraid for their sons. They're afraid for their husbands and their brothers if someone should make a false allegation. And uh, looking at what Kavanaugh went through, you know, a lot of guys are going to go, well, is it worth it to stay masculine or are we going to buckle under? And this, again, is where the moral code has to come through. I, I saw that multiple times when I used to work down in New York City in Manhattan. Um, and it was, it was invariably, and, and because I know the inside, what was going on in these different that I'm talking about, um, women accusing men um, of, of something. Um, and it, it, it being immediately the woman was considered to be right, and the men usually ended up losing their jobs or were moved to another apartment or something bad happened to them very quickly. Um, and if I was on the outside and saw that, oh, well, maybe the guy deserved it. And, and there definitely are bad characters out there who do deserve it. But I saw again and again that women were using actually that process uh, to help themselves and certainly to kill an, off an adversary and then the war for office advancement or, or what have you. And so it's, it isn't just one way or the other way. Justice needs – there needs to be some fairness uh, in this. We need to be considered innocent or proven guilty even in those situations. So, I, yeah, that's why I, as a guy, you know, and I've seen that happen – um, and I've seen, I've seen, also seen the bad guys. I, don't get me wrong. I haven't seen. I've also seen bad guys in those offices who deserved what they got. Um, but it's just it, it bothers me the situation we're in now. And and how do we bring this back um, to a fairness of due process from where unfortunately it's gotten to? Well, we've got to first get to the booth on November sixth, get conservatives back into office, and get these whiny me too full fake nitwits out of there. <laughs> that's going to well be put. our first start <laughs> well Frank uh, people can find you uh, you're up on Amazon with all of your great books people can learn about you by going directly to your website also which is yourname.com frankminiature.com and uh, I'm going to be heading up to uh, upstate New York uh, in June to visit my sister so uh, maybe we might run into each other let me know I'd love to see you 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Check out Frank Minniter. His book is Spies in Congress, Inside the Democrats' Cover-Up of Cybercrime. Also check out his other books. Uh, he's got This Will Make a Man Out of You, One Man's Search for Hemingway, and a whole mess of other great things out there. So check him out, Frank Minniter, Frank Minniter. Boy, I cannot talk today. FrankMinniter.com. <laughs> hey, Friday. I'm sorry for butchering your name. All right. All right. Thank you. Check that. All right. Let's Take bring care, on. Uh, let's bring on another gent, good fan favorite of the show, uh, George Wrightstone. He is the author of Inconvenient Facts. Uh, good afternoon, George. How are you today? Very good, Anne. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it is a pleasure to have you back. And as I joke, you know, I'm your first. Your first media interview. You were the first. <laughs> you never forget your first. <laughs> I got That's myself right. in trouble with Jackie. Poor Jackie. She she goes, what are you doing? You're supposed to go through. And I says, I keep on forgetting. I knew George long before I knew you, Jackie. <laughs> I can't right. track of everything. Mm-hmm. So I think I smoothed it over. Oh, man. You know, you are a troublemaker. You really know that. How uh, yeah. dare you upset those Antifa people? How dare you? Yeah, there was... Uh... You're, you're referring to my date with Antifa in St. Louis a few weeks ago. I was speaking at the uh, Phyllis Schlafly Eagle Council in St. Louis, and uh, three there were people, at, uh, 30 or so protesters out front, and uh, I got up to speak, and halfway through my talk, three of them jumped up and started screaming at me. They were calling me, uh, and they started chanting, uh, uh, you have the blood of the refugees of Puerto Rico and Katrina on your hands, and s- scientists lie, people die. And uh, the police were right there, though. They they were there within a few minutes and uh, escorted them out. But uh, it was interesting that they would come after me because we had uh, Pamela Geller was speaking uh, after me. And if you know Pamela Geller, she's, uh, she, she incites a lot of hate because of her, I believe she hosts a cartoon contest every year on who can draw the best cartoon of Muhammad. So if they were going to come after me instead of her, I, I was, I guess I must be doing something right. <laughs> air finger quotes up in the air, doing something right. That's for sure. Pam has been a guest on the show here. So yeah, we know Pam Geller. Um, yeah. It, and she does have a way of, a, uh, uh, what do you say? Stirring, stirring the pot. Stirring the pot. Yeah, I'm I'm getting good at it too, and uh, we're uh, I'm continuing to to write commentaries, and I'll be working on my uh, we're, we're launching a new app uh, for the book that I think can be a, a real game changer in the climate change debate, where I'm going to be able to put put uh, people can access on their a smartphone app, uh, have at their fingertips the 60 in- charts related to the 60 inconvenient facts in my book. Uh, and that's the author Gregory Wrightstone. So that would be uh, uh, would be my book there. Inconvenient facts: the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. So we're busily uh, we're hoping to have that app rolled out uh, in the next thirty or forty days. Now I, I saw that, and that was one of the things I had down here to talk to you about. You know, and how does it exactly work? You know, do you key in a, a keyword, or you just you have a chart that you just a one, two, three? How, well, we have a table work? of content. You're going to have a table of contents. You can go down. And you, if you're looking for polar bears, you can go. I've got. I'll have three separate charts just for polar bears in terms of 
polar bear population, and then there's a uh, an interesting study that was done comparing polar bears in high ice loss areas versus low ice loss areas, and it's just the opposite of of what the researchers went into it thinking. And actually, so you'll be able to click right on that chart in in the table of contents. So it'll be a free app um, that'll give you the first 30 inconvenient facts in the book. And once you're lured in, you can. I'm going to have the other 30 available for a, a small fee. We're looking, we're thinking about 2.99 for the for the app. Uh, but I think it'd be valuable oh, nice. resource for people to have. That way, that way, if you're if you're having Thanksgiving dinner with your nephew that's attending Columbia University, he says something about well, polar bears are going extinct. You can go, oh wait a minute, here's a chart of polar bear population for the last 60 years, and it's sourced. Uh, you're going to have the, you know, it's important to have all this information fully sourced where it's coming from, uh, and that'll all be available right on that app. So we're, we're very really excited. Nice. About I definitely that. have to have you, going to have to have you back on when we do that, so we can play around with the app. You got to send it to me ahead of time so I can fool around with it. It sounds yeah, we're exciting doing, because sometimes you, and I'm, I'm doing videos uh, right. I'm doing videos right now, oh, so each good. each chart will have a video link to it. You know, short minute and a half or two minute video. Gregory. Nice, because you know. You... Go ahead, Curtis. Yes. Yeah. What is the prospect of uh, another major earthquake um, on the West Coast? I'm just curious. One hundred percent. Give or what take. areas? Well, we we know what the high risk areas are. They're, they're the main. The main are the main part in California. though is the San San Andreas Fault, and the there are subsidiary faults there. Uh, that that's the big that's the big mama. Uh, because we we just had a tsunami as a result of um, earthquake, I believe, under under the ocean. Yeah, those those things happen. I mean, it's it's an. We kill a lot and, of people. Oh yeah, kill a yeah. lot of people. But but again, this is uh, there's nothing there's no human relationship to that. Uh, I mean, the if you're referring to sea level rise, I mean it's gone up. What, what four centimeters in the last century? Four inches, and uh, I mean it's it's so small as to be inconsequential so far, and there's been no so those things tsunamis and and uh, earthquakes are all uh, what we'll call acts of God with no really zero human interaction with it. Well, there's a question up in the chat room from Kel, but I'm going to ask mm-hmm. it a little bit differently. Um, recently, Republicans in the House passed a carbon tax, and mm-hmm. tell us what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, well, they, that's that. She's a bit confused, although she's got the genesis of it right. Uh, there was there was a bill up uh, introduced by a Republican uh, that was not passed. Um, which was troubling for carbon tax. Uh, there was also a resolution up uh, condemning a carbon tax. Up until this point, the same resolution has been submitted twice before, and it had 100% participation rate, rate from all Republicans in terms of supporting a resolution condemning a carbon tax. This time it had seven Republicans, which is very um, disconcerting. What we have is, and in fact on my on my website, I've got a blog post talking exactly about that. It uh, goes into some detail if she's interested in looking. Uh, and the, the, the troubling part is we have so many 
old Republicans, by old I mean the Bush era people, the the old one one world government, you know, the George Shultz, uh, Trent Lott. Uh, I don't have it up in front of me, but you you know the type of people, the old Bush era one world people, uh, that are pushing this this carbon tax, and they're calling it a conservative free market solution uh, to solve climate change. So this is probably a an economically crippling solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Uh, it would be it would be bad. Uh, the the bill that was proposed uh, would create a whole new uh, government uh, bureaucracy that would be doling out money uh, to the uh, to the poor because their energy the poor are, are are most stressed by energy increases and a carbon tax would increase energy for for everyone in America for almost every good that we buy and the poor are it's really a regressive tax uh, where it taxes the, the the poor the most in terms of the percentage of their income. So this, the bill that was proposed would uh, establish a carbon tax of uh, a certain dollar per, I believe, ton of, of CO2 that's, that's, that's being taxed, and, and that increases a certain percentage, I think 2% a year, and there's no upward limit to it. So we're going to have a steadily increasing energy costs, but then this, this bill would propose to create this new bureaucracy, which would then take a certain percentage of that tax and just give it back to the poorest among us, and then distribute the rest among states for uh, various uh, services and goods. Uh, so really, it would be what's proposed is really a massive redistribution of the wealth from from the the wealthiest to the poorest, which, after all, isn't isn't that what we want? Not, <laughs> not. Uh, but it would be it's it's economically crippling. It would it would be for the United States. I mean. We're a big country. We could probably survive, but we'd survive a lot better without it, for sure. But CO2 is so bad for us. It's killing the uh, environment, Gregory. Haven't you heard that? Oh, no. Well, that's why they came and protested me in St. <laughs> Louis. The title of my talk there was uh, How Inconvenient Facts, How Rising Temperatures and Increasing CO2 Are Benefiting the Earth and Humanity. And that's really been what I talk about a lot. Uh, I've, I've transitioned really more at the beginning when I when I wrote the book and speaking. It was really about, oh my God, look at the stuff they're hiding. Look what you don't know. Look what uh, did you know that CO2 is not the largest greenhouse gas? It's water vapor. Did you know this? Did you know that? Things that they don't want you to know. And I've really transitioned over really into into a more more of an argument of of yes the climate's warming yes CO2's increasing but look at all the benefits we're seeing because if we look at all the the predicted events and you know them droughts forest fires hurricanes we see if we look at the actual science facts and the data it's exactly opposite of what we're being told so what we're, we're what we're being told the bad things that your your listeners think are happening or will happen are actually predictions based on failed climate models that overpredict warming way too much, two and a half times too much, three times too much in the tropics. Uh, so we have to separate speculation from reality. And since I live in the real world, I say, well, let's, let's, let's look, let's forget about, well, not forget, but let's put aside what might 
be happening in 30, 50, or 80 years in the future. Let's take a look at what's actually happening today. And if we look at that, we find that uh, forest fires, droughts, and hurricanes are all in decline. And droughts and, and forest fires are, are a great story that really goes to the crux of, of the good things that are happening uh, to the climate. Because it's both droughts and hurricanes and actually intense heat waves are all being ameliorated by increasing soil moisture content around the world. And I know it sounds counterintuitive that moisture in the soil would be increasing during warming events, but it, but it actually is. And that's, that's because there's more, more uh, water vapor in the atmosphere with higher temperatures. The atmosphere can hold more water, which is leading to more precipitation. Uh, the alarmists will say, oh, well, that will lead to flooding. And, you know, in some cases it might. But what, it's, what we are seeing for sure is that uh, some of the worst, driest parts on the earth are, are, are actually greening. Um, India, Australia, the southern Sahara, the Sahel Desert in the southern Sahara is greening, former desert turning into a, a lush grassland. And your, your listeners can Google that if they like. To, if they, they go, whoa, Greg, they can just Google NASA greening Sahara, those three keywords, and, and see what they find. And you'll see what NASA has to say, say about it. It's just an, a truly, truly amazing story that's gone unreported is the greening of the earth. Uh, and there's, there's, there's no arguing the fact that we're seeing, by greening I mean increased vegetation. And it's stark. Well, no, it's no. huge. I'm going to ask you like a two-part question here. Um, because I live on a coastline, but I chose an area where I'm in a no-flood zone. I chose an area that is a house mm-hmm. built with a crawl space, not a slab. I did certain things to make sure that should we have a hurricane or any flooding come through, you know, my property will be safe. Uh, but you have mm-hmm. people building up along certain areas where in the past there were areas underwater. A perfect example, uh, the battery down in, in Manhattan, uh, Manhattan Island itself, areas of Staten Island. Uh, you have people building up artificial coastlines or supporting coastlines you have coastlines that change the course over time because of tidal waves and people build too close to this change man is encroaching on nature instead of looking at what nature's doing and then building responsibly and then you have the hurricanes that came through such as recently the one that hit mexico city and you have poor poorly built homes you have Mm -hmm. areas that are, are placing themselves within the potential path of a storm without taking the proper precautions. And then it's woe is me. You've got 24-hour mainstream media. Oh, look how bad it is. You know, climate change is destroying us. What is the truth? Well, the truth is that uh, if we look at both storms and uh, global cyclone activity, cyclones or hurricanes across the world, uh, Ryan Maui is a, a truly talented uh, hurricane expert, probably the top guy in the world. And he's, he's got, his website is weatherbell.com if your listeners want to go there. Uh, but he, he lists probably, it's probably the best accumulation of, of tropical cyclones and weather data going back to the beginning uh, of the uh, satellite era. So this is real accurate information capturing every tropical storm and every hurricane at, uh, his data there clearly shows a decline in both of tropical storms and hurricanes. It's not 
I'm not going to say it's significant, but it's a decline nonetheless. Uh, if you go to the NOAA website, and it, or if you go to my actually my website, uh, inconvenientfacts.xyz, I've got a hurricane page there. And uh, I've got both Ryan Maui's uh, chart showing tropical cyclones and, and or, uh, tropical storms and cyclones. And then below that, I have one showing land falling hurricanes. It's from NOAA. Uh, NOAA's data goes back to the late 1800s. It may go back as far as 1850. I'm not sure. Because uh, th- these would be land falling hurricanes in the United States. It's hard to get good long term hurricane data because. If you could imagine before the the satellite era, you'd have hurricanes that would rise up and get to Category 2 and then wander off, and we'd never know about it. Um, But NOAA believes that any hurricane that made landfall in the United States, we'd know about it, right? If it came ashore uh, in 1850 in Galveston, well, there were still people there, and you'd know about it. So they're confident uh, in capturing all of the landfalling hurricanes, and there's a, a there is a significant decline in those numbers. And again, I've got that uh, up on the hurricane page of my of my website, inconvenientfacts.xyz, so you can uh, go and look at those numbers. So we have seen a uh, definitely not an increase in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the radic or the reliably alarmist IPCC, uh, also states in their latest uh, five-year study. Uh, there's another one going to be coming out soon. Uh, they, they stated there that, there that they saw no increase. And they wouldn't go as far as to say there was a decrease, but they, they stated firmly that there was no increase in hurricane activity related to human activity. Gregory. Yeah. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I live in Florida, and as you probably know, they're always building communities and and plazas and shopping centers and I wonder if they really learn the ge- geography of the, the the area because we also have a problem with sinkholes. Yeah. And I was just wondering if that was man encroaching on nature without regard for the dangers that nature can present. Yeah, sinkholes are again. It's a that's a that's a, 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 a an act of God. There, sinkholes are are found where you have limestone under. Uh, Below the soil, and the limestone actually dissolves; it doesn't erode. So that, that that's what forms the caverns. And then, uh, as the cavern grows, uh, sooner or later, that it will grow. Uh, not always, but if it's close enough to the surface, the the uh, roof of the cavern can collapse to create uh, a sinkhole. There, uh, there's uh, there's there's forward planning that should be done for if you're going to build anything major. Uh, it's hard. If you, it's probably not worth it if you're building a home. It's hard to get those studies done to figure out uh, with ground pen- penetrating radar if there's a cavern under near where you're going to below where you're going to build. That's usually not done for homes. Uh, perhaps if you're building a if you're a developer and you're going to have 50 or 80 homes in one area, you might want to do that. Uh, so, yeah. One of the, but one of the problems, as you mentioned, is you know people building where they oughtn't build. Uh, that's up to them. That's their free choice if they want to do that. But it's it should also be our choice uh, to decide not to insure uh, them for their risks that they knowingly undertake, is what I would say. So if you want to uh, if you want to build a house on the beach, 
uh, have at it. Go ahead, but don't expect the American people to bail you out when you get flattened by a hurricane that may or may not come, or the same with building in floodplains. Um, you know, there's there's you could build a, a home and make it. We we saw in I was at Mexico Beach where the the one house that survived was specifically built to withstand a I think it was a 200 mile an hour hurricane, and it did. So uh, you know, there's we we see along particularly the Gulf Coast. Uh, it's uh, most of the Gulf Coast is sinking slowly because these wow. are built on built on deltaic sediments and. The natural process of deltaic sediments is that they, what's called dewater, they're slowly squishing the water out from the muds and converting as part of the lithification process of of muds turning into rocks. It's just this dewatering, so it's slowly, slowly subsiding, and that adds to the the small amount of of sea level rise we've seen. And then, Ann, you talked about the battery. The battery actually, I believe, is on solid rock. It's not. It's not. Uh, here's my wife calling oh. me. Uh oh, she oh. knew I was going to be on with you. So uh, jealous. Um, Pick up the groceries. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, come help me bring them in from the. But uh, so there's uh, the battery itself. There's a great uh, long-term tidal gauge. These are tidal gauges are what are used to measure sea level uh, long-term. Uh, rather than satellite data, because satellite data is, believe it or not, as accurate as the as the tidal gauges, and it's very short term. We have a long term tidal gauge from the battery that shows just a complete stable, stable sea level rise going back to the mid nineteenth uh, century. Well, you know, here in South Carolina, uh, the area called Hunting Island, Fripp Island, uh, all these areas. The, the, the sands shift with the tide. Yep. So people go yep. out and build these artificial barriers trying to trap the sands, which yeah, means the island Island's. behind them, yeah, but the island behind them ends up losing the sand because we put this artificial barrier up there. So, you know, instead of allowing Mother Nature to take its course, matter of fact, the Hunting Island Lighthouse has been moved, I believe, twice already, and the sea is starting to encroach in again on it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the talk is whether or not they're going to have to move it again. So instead of man building in accordance with nature, we say, oh, we want this beautiful oceanfront property. I want to be able to walk out my front door, go straight down to the beach. Instead of taking caution to take care, we end up saying, well, you know, and then all of a sudden the house comes down because the water has encroached, the pilings are gone, your house sinks into the sea, and woe is me, where's FEMA? Right. Well... But that's the thing. You're talking about the barrier islands that uh, along most of, of the east coast of the United States, down from the Delmarva Peninsula, Assateague, Chincoteague, uh, the Outer Banks, further south, you have these, this strip of barrier islands. And those things are constantly in motion. There's, uh, it goes from one end of the island. Uh, these things are, are gradually moving. And the people that build there should be aware of the risks um, and Frankly, Ann, I'd I'd love to have a home down there, right where you're describing. I'd love to have a high-risk home if I can afford it, and I can afford to lose it. And I should have every uh, right. And I'd love to, I would love to have that home, 
but I would be fully aware of the risks I'm taking, and I would not expect the federal government to come in and reimburse me for my losses because I'm, 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 uh, you know, if you don't know, then you're an idiot. And uh, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't <laughs> be expecting me and you uh, and everybody else to bail your butt out when when it gets wiped away, when you fully should have assessed the risk. Well, unfortunately, my outgoing, or I should say it's fortunately he's my outgoing senator, uh, a congressman, uh, who happens to be a friend of mine, Mark Sanford, had proposed exactly that, for FEMA to buy up property of people that live in flood zones, in flood areas. Can you Why? imagine the expense of government? But no. So you're talking about, not, <laughs> yeah, if you live near a lake, you live near a river, uh, you live near the coastline, how many Billions upon billions of homes yeah. are we talking about? No. I think that's a no. Um, and then what do you do with them? Uh, yeah, that's that's. I hadn't I hadn't heard about that, but uh, uh, that's that that's a bit ridiculous. Um, you know, there's you know I'm not so sure about this. I don't know a whole lot about the the flood programs, but I've seen it often enough that I just I have to question it. I agree with you. Now, you sent me a video just before uh, I went on air, which I did watch, and I loved it. Uh, you're talking about how climate change had fueled the witch hunts. But I also yeah. add in that climate change not only fueled the witch hunts, it also fueled wars. Uh, it was during this time period of the witch hunts yep. that we had the uh, Muslim caliphate expand itself into areas of Europe because they were looking because they were running out of food. They were running out of space. They had to expand. So much happened because of the way climate changed at that period of time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've talked before about uh, one of the things I find fascinating is the relationship between the rise and fall of temperatures and the rise and fall of civilization. And uh, so what we what we see is that uh, during warming periods, uh, consistently, we see that uh, civilizations rise up, and then in the intervening cold periods, uh, civilizations collapse. We see that uh, crop failure, famine, pestilence, uh, increases in, in various epidemics, mass depopulation. They're, they're, they just go time after time, warming, great, bountiful harvest, people are happy. Cold weather sets in for centuries, and we have seen mass depopulation. So in the, uh, the the high it was called the high Middle Ages, which would have been from about 950 to 1250 A.D. They called it the high Middle Ages because that was the the height of what you think of of the the Magna Carta, the great cathedral building. Uh, but then, starting in the 13th century, it started getting cold. We were going into the what's called the Little Ice Age, and things got pretty desperate. And uh, by about 1430, uh, the witch hunt started because they didn't believe this. This cold weather brought on uh, crop failures for the main part, and and they could not. Bear in mind, these people were in a subs- agricultural subsistence culture, so they could they could survive a, a a poor harvest one year, but you know back to back to back harvests were calamitous for these people. There wasn't a, a good supply network to feed the hungry. Uh, so it was horrible, and they didn't blame the cold weather, the, the terrible hailstorms, the, the wet summers, the summers w- uh, with no 
or the year without a summer. They didn't blame it on God or nature. They blamed it on weather-causing witches. And in the four, in, starting in 1430, uh, massive witch hunts occurred across Europe, Germany, and France at the most part, uh, the higher mountainous areas. And uh, they went after quite a few witches, uh, many thousands between the 15th and 17th century, many thousands of witches uh, were burned at the stake uh, to eradicate uh, uh, these weather-causing witches. What's, what's interesting, we, we say they started about 1430. Uh, by the early 1500s, uh, another little slight warming trend started. And so what happened? Crops came back. People could plant and harvest, and things were good. This went on for about 40 years. And why did the, and why did the harvest come back? And and it was because they killed all the witches, right? That's clearly the answer, <laughs> right? But so we had about they had about forty. It was fascinating. You can just track the witch hunts by the temperature, and uh, so we had about forty years of, of bountiful harvest, no witch hunts, and then starting in the we know the year was fifteen sixty that. Things went from bad to worse. Things got really, really bad. We were going into the depths of the Little Ice Age. Huge hailstorms that just were uh, hail the size of your fist that were several feet deep, and that would just come and destroy all the, all the crops. And of course, it was why were why was this occurring? Well, the witches, right? There were weather causing witches. Um, mostly, they targeted uh, they targeted uh, widows. Now, bear in mind, in the 16th century, uh, life was was rugged. It was it was short, cruel, and, and uh, pretty bad. So you would have lots of deaths. There were lots of uh, men killed, uh, women widowed. Uh, a lot of the people who were targeted as witches were uh, were living uh, by themselves, usually a meager existence. Uh, really on the edges of medieval society. And those were primarily the women uh, targeted as being witches. Uh, and it was, it was what was interesting, too, just a little side note here, there were also sorcerers that were thought to be. Uh, but apparently in my research here, not all, the, not all the witches and sorcerers were thought to be bad. Some of them used their powers uh, to actually prevent terrible storms. And uh, one, one study... Uh, an account I read uh, during my research on this said that there was a, a particular sorcerer that uh, could prevent terrible storms. And uh, one came up uh, at night and was just devastating. And the people got with him, they interviewed him the next day, and they said, why didn't you drive the storm away? And he said, well, I, I, was, I was too drunk. I've been drinking wine since mid-afternoon, and I was too drunk to drive the storm away. And everybody, oh, okay, well, that explains it. And I thought that was fascinating. So, you know, we had this whole, this whole culture and belief system that rose up around these. Uh, but there, most, there weren't many of the males, but, but it was mainly, mainly females that were targeted and to be burned at the stake. So it was a, it was a well, tough time. But I thought it was fascinating. Well, our friend... <clears throat> Our friend Kel is, 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 I love her. Uh, she's saying, don't forget about the black cats, too, or the left-handed redheads, and she's guilty of that. Uh-oh. They would, they would use, 
any any excuse to label someone as a witch and then to place the blame on that instead of facing the reality that the climate is changing. Yeah, and what I did too, I've got a commentary we're trying I just finished up yesterday that about this subject and uh we're we're trying to find a home for it right now uh to see who's going to publish it but but in there I compare so what we had in this in the in the 16th century back in the late middle ages we had the consensus opinion if you will was that evil humans were controlling and modifying the climate and temperature and it was leading to horrific consequences. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Sounds a lot like what we're being told today. And oh, yeah. so, you know, here here today, Al Gore and Dr. Michael Mann will tell you that um, evil humans uh, and our sins of emission of carbon dioxide are causing the planet to warm and leading to horrific consequences. Very similar to what uh, a fellow by the name of Heinrich Kramer was the chief agitator against the witches back in the in the 15th century. Uh, similar to what he was was saying, somewhat the same thing. And I'll argue that you know they're, what they're trying to do, what Heinrich Kramer, Al Gore, and Michael Mann are trying to do is to control the uncontrollable, because the same natural forces being controlled by the sun and the planet that have been active for millions of years are are active today and it's these aren't these aren't new processes but uh too often they don't look at the history and i think that's one that's one of the big things that in the climate change debate we really have to go back and and look at things like this and the relationship between naturally occurring temperature rise and fall and and what actually happens in, in terms of benefits or punishments to mankind by the temperature changes well, you know, you know, I do my homework. I did read the article that you uh, sent me, and it's, it's okay. funny because behind Heinrich Kramer, who's a Dominican friar uh, and a papal inquisitor, in, in, I cannot talk to Inquisitor. Today. Inquisitor, thank you. Uh, it was at his urging that Pope Innocent VIII issued yep. the uh, decree. And it's funny, you were using those same words uh, because you wrote back in town hall back in June – and I have circled this with <laughs> quotations and I did? everything else. Pope Francis, no, I did. Oh, Pope okay. Pope Francis is doing the same thing. Uh, he has a long history, yep. you wrote, of supporting the notion of catastrophic man-made global warming and is using his interpretation of biblical teaching to support it. And he wrote the Laudato Si on climate change and man's responsibility to the planet as a warning to his flocks of the dangers of our, quote, sins of emission, unquote. And I put next to it, no, sins of omission. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's a 100-page manifesto. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, that was an article I wrote entitled, The Pope Has It Exactly Backwards on Climate Change. And he does. And so many of our Christian brethren uh, – are proposing things that will be actually harmful to the poorest and, and, and the weakest among us. Uh, their, their proposals, if we would enact them, the Paris Climate Accord uh, carbon tax. We talked earlier about how carbon tax and also the Paris Climate Accords goes along with it, is really a, a regressive 
system that punishes the poorest on earth. Uh, the Pope's proposed, this Pope's proposal would would necessarily raise uh, energy costs across the uh, across the earth. And as I wrote in that article about, I believe there were four million deaths a year uh, due to people cooking over open fires, mo- mostly cooking over dried dung. Uh, so you've met mostly uh, lung diseases and, and deaths related to that inhalation of the of the burning dung and those people are in desperate need of of uh, things like propane, compressed gas, uh, natural gas, kerosene to cook with, rather than uh, the, the really harmful uh, uh, other things that they're cooking with. There are billions of people on Earth that are energy impoverished, and uh, what, if the Pope would have his way, and we would enact the Paris Climate Accord, those people would, would be destined to uh, really to a life of of the same poverty that they're stuck in now. Uh, Low energy prices and clean energy uh, can lift these, help to lift these people up out of this this wrenching poverty. And that's what we should strive to do, not just keep keep our thumb on them and keep them down because of our imagined uh, dangers of carbon dioxide increase. Well, you mentioned the burning of dung, but you also have, and this happened just recently in Africa, and I'm trying to remember if it was Nigeria or not, where a um, tanker's line broke and the people went running with buckets Mm. to scoop up the kerosene, and unfortunately it ignited and hundreds of people were literally burned to death because they had no fuel. When this, this line ruptured, they said, oh, we finally have some fuel for cooking and doing everything else. And they tried to get it. Well, actually, we're stealing it. But once it ignited, hundreds and hundreds of innocent people died, mm. all because it's bad. Yeah, they're, they're energy it's, impoverished. It's causing global warming. Yeah. Energy impoverished. And that's uh, – it's, it's sad. And it's – these people that are proposing these things – uh, they, they really – they're not thinking about, again, what this is going to do uh, to the impoverished on the earth. But then again, do they really care? Because uh, I've got lots of quotes from supposed environmentalists that really think the best thing that could happen on earth would be a, uh, a massive influenza epidemic or some pandemic that would wipe out hundreds of millions or billions of people around the earth. You know that. You know that there's there are those people out there that believe that that you know that, that we're actually a, a blight on the planet, and uh, uh, I, I I disagree strongly with that. I I think the the best thing we can do is to utilize all the resources that we have uh, and do it responsibly. Do it do it uh, be good stewards, if you will, of of God's creation that we were handed. Uh, do it. Do it cleanly, do it environmentally friendly, uh, but nonetheless use those resources that we have uh, for the benefit of all mankind. Bam. Yeah, yeah. They, they tried this with us back in the '60s and '70s. Overpopulation. The Earth is going to be overpopulation. In another 20 years, there will be no room for everyone else. So we have to slow down. So instead of having, you know four or five kids, you know, have only two. And then it was down to only have one child. So we've been depopulating 
the United States. And now the excuse is is that we don't have enough population here to support the rest of our society. Oh, my goodness, we're running out of Social Security. We're running out of taxes because we've stopped producing here in the United States. Oh, this is another excuse for illegal alien immigration. But we need to yeah. repopulate the United States. We need to open the borders. Yet where has the overpopulation occurred? Not here. And you yeah. have someone had posted where, where the largest CO2 emissions are coming. China realizes that they do not have enough population. They're now encouraging their people to yeah, have more than one child. Right, and we're leading the world in carbon dioxide reductions, even though we're not, we're not part of the Paris Climate Accord. Thank you, fracking, for that. And uh, it's because of the shale revolution, horizontal drilling, and hydraulic fracturing. Uh, has led to this uh, incredible decrease in energy costs, uh, primarily leading to uh, where I'm at in Pennsylvania. We have the the largest natural gas accumulation in the world, uh, right beneath my feet here. Uh, We'll have probably hundreds of years of of development of of clean-burning natural gas here, and also uh, leading to huge oil development in Texas and Montana and South Dakota. So this is a good thing. Um, that that we should be embracing uh, rather than trying to move away from, because it, wind energy and solar just ain't going to cut it. Uh, I believe I believe you no. might have had me on when I had I'd written an article on uh, uh, there was a Pennsylvania what's called the Pennsylvania Game Commission that controls huge swaths of land across Pennsylvania, and they actually banned all wind energy projects because. It was contrary to their mission of, of preserving wildlife in the forests and also the dangers that, that each one of these wind, wind turbines uh, has to anyone, including not just the uh, animals, but any hunters uh, that are around there. They would have to exclude a huge area because uh, these wind turbines actually can move, the tips can move uh, as much as 200 miles an hour uh, in an area like Pennsylvania here, you wouldn't have the problem down there, but uh, one of the big problems we see in the northern climes are, are icing of the blades. And if you can imagine, uh, mm. uh, the blade ices up, it can throw it can throw that ice for large distances. Uh, I don't think I'd want to get hit, hit with a 250-pound chunk of ice that's being thrown from a 200-mile-an-hour blade from the top of a mountain. Uh, you wouldn't either. Or even a they shard. Get your attention. What's that? Or even a shard. Even a shard yeah. that would be sharper than a thrown dagger. You know, yeah. not only yeah. that, there have been a lot of reports written about the the other health hazards of these wind farms being near areas of, of uh, residence because of the vibrations. And it has caused uh, physical and mental problems because of the constant vibrations. The human mind and body just could not withstand it. And don't get me going with the solar panels. You know, they yeah, have I, these massive I, fields now. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I listened to the – there was a discussion that the Game Commission had about this. Fascinating to hear these guys take. They're basically regular Joes. Uh, the one guy that lives fairly close to me in southwestern Pennsylvania here, he just he went on about how he hates the wind turbines. He says, I have to get up every day and look across – on the mountain to these wind turbines, uh, the, just a blight on on our. I used to have a beautiful view 
I used to this, I used to that. Now I can't even, you know, I've got my property that goes up. Uh, I, and I, he just went on about it. And he says, you know, it's it's the aesthetic or anti-aesthetic uh, problems you have with, with wind energy. Uh, I think we'll come to realize that probably too late. Um, and these things finally eventually come down. Uh, or If you Google uh, wind turbine tragedies or wind turbine uh, dangers. You, there's a, there are a lot of videos there of what a wind turbine looks like when it catches fire. Gregory. Wow. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, how dangerous is fracking to the earth? Uh, well, it's an industrial process. Are you talking about to fresh water or and or to people? around the process the the workers it's uh it's actually very safe for the workers a very low injury rate for the most part but it is an industrial high pressure process uh yeah. my son-in-law actually works as a uh, on a frack crew um it's good money he's uh my daughter was able to stay home with our grandchild who's adorable i might add but uh <laughs> because he's making good money in the oil field uh so it's uh um, safety comes first out there. They're extremely, extremely uh, safety conscious in terms of uh, having the, the mechanical process. process. Uh, as for harmful environmental effects, there's never been one case of fracking harming fresh water, not one. Fracking, there are dangers possible with contamination of fresh water through spillage if you've got a truck with that's bringing acid to the well site and it has an accident and leaks or whatever it has on the truck, uh, leakage from the surface. Um, but in terms of direct uh, contamination from the frack job uh, into fresh water, it's actually physically impossible uh, because the fracking is done at depth, usually well below 5,000 feet. Uh, and the vertical fractures that are created with fracking uh, can't extend higher than about 2,000 feet. And the fresh water is usually in the first 50 to 150 or 400 or so feet from the surface. I mean, it used to be a, a topic that was demon, demonized by the left, and you just don't hear hear that stuff. Because it's not happening. Because it's not <laughs> happening. They were able to – no, it's, it, it is. It's a fact. There have been so I many know. thousands and thousands of wells uh, drilled – uh, across the United States in the in the fra- in the areas where where it's conducive, that people are now realizing that, oh well, I guess they were wrong about that because in the in the early days they could tell stories of two-headed goats and and the cow that quit mi- giving up milk and this and that and they were crazy stories and they could they were debunked as you know and and proven as being. Uh, incorrect, uh, but they would seem to be cropping up day after day after day. Uh, I'm the only, the probably the most effective anti-fracking person out there was a guy by the name of Josh Fox. He did um, the pseudo-documentary, it was called Gasland, where he could turn the faucet on and light it. Um, and I actually, I debated him. I'm the only person that's ever debated him. Uh, drove over to Cumberland, Maryland, he and I debated I kicked his butt, and he hasn't debated anybody since. And that's because I had the science, the facts, and the data on my side. He had nothing but uh, 
pseudoscience and emotion and fake news and emotion, right? We see emotion a lot that's that's carrying the day. But you're right, we don't hear anything from them anymore. What they've moved over now instead of oh, we're all going to die from fracking, it's going to be oh, the pipelines are bad because they realize oh. now they've lost that battle. Uh, but if they can stop pipelines from going in, uh, and you can't sell the product, well, then they can stop it that way. And they've been very effective uh, in doing that. But we're going to see well, the chickens are going to come home to roost at some point, particularly in the Northeast. Uh, Boston, the New England area, uh, they're, they're not going to be able to get the, the natural gas they need to heat their their homes and buildings. And when we get to a bad winter, and we haven't had one really for for some time, um, it's they're going to be crying. They're going to be uh, crying. Governor Cuomo and and the rest that have been stopping these pipelines, uh, they're going to have to explain to their the citizens that elected them, you know why why they can't why they halted the pipelines that were so necessary to get the product up there so so Grandma doesn't freeze. Well, then we, we've got a couple of comments in the chat room, one of them from Ornery, because he seems to feel that the drilling fluid would be harmful to the aquifer. But doesn't the aquifer actually love, lie above, not below, the uh, the, the uh, resource? Yeah, well, the, what she's talking about, uh, as you're drilling, uh, you can, you can uh, in, introduce some contamination to the aquifer. Now, by contamination, I'm talking about uh, muds, nothing, no pollutants that's that's there. But we're usually drilling that on freshwater fluid. Uh, so, it, you, as you imagine, as you're drilling through there, uh, you can get uh, you know muds being sucked up into the aquifer as you're drilling through the aquifer. You get the same thing when you drill a water well. If if she would drill a water well, uh, and as she's going through the aquifer we often see discoloration in the neighbor's well. And what's it discolored from by? If you can imagine that bits going and pounding and grinding up that rock, and these aquifers kind of slowly moves through uh, and can transport. But it, the, we're talking really, what we were talking about before was the, was the actual fracking process, which takes place uh, a mile or many miles underground. Uh, and it's, it's, there's, again, there's never been any case of the actual fracking process uh, harming the fresh water. Now, uh, there have been cases of, of while they were drilling, they encountered shallow gas before they got to the target. Uh, that was the case the original project up in, in uh, northeast PA uh, encountered shallow, uh, shallow uh, gas. So, yeah, actually, then, then no aquifer has actually been polluted by chemicals from fracking. Directly from the fracking, that's right. I mean, there is, there, there's always that possibility in any industrial process of, of uh, spillage from the surface. That's, that's probably the, the most likely uh, contaminant that we see out there. Uh, again, they, they go jump through hoops to make sure all those things are taken care of. Um, but any... Uh, industrial process, or or your neighbor that's got this changing his oil in his drive in his driveway, that has some leak down. Uh, yeah, but but the, the the fact of the matter is, fracking itself has never directly impacted uh, fresh water. 
Now, the other question is, you hear everyone talking about the ice melting in the Arctic. The mm-hmm. ice is melting. We are measuring it littler, little more. We're seeing less and less and less and less ice. But that's not the real truth, is it? Well, we have seen, a. if we look over decades and many decades, there, there's been a loss of the Arctic ice. There, there has. Uh, and that's to be expected. It's slowed recently because we've really been in a almost a 20-year pause in, in temperature rise. Uh, but during the, the period of, of warming from the uh, late 70s to, to the late 90s, that warming period, we saw uh, Arctic ice um, receding, and, it, and it, it has been. And that's to be expected with uh, with warming, and we're in this warming trend. Uh, what we see in the Antarctic is completely different. We see for sure an expansion of the ice. Uh, just about everybody's agreed with that in terms of both uh, – the work by the top Antarctic guy, uh, Jay Zwally, uh, from from NOAA, uh, uh, reports an increase in ice volume. Uh, everyone can report. Everyone reports increasing ice aerial extent uh, in Antarctica. Uh, so this is this is something that's uh, uh, that is happening in the Arctic. But your your listeners may not be aware that. Uh, we can melt the entire pole, northern polar ice cap, and it would virtually make no difference at all to sea level. And that's because the northern polar ice cap is floating on the ocean, right? It's The only thing that drives sea level is the melting of ice on land. So that would be uh, mountain glaciers in North America, Europe, Asia, but primarily Greenland and Antarctica, because they're... Those, that ice there is based on on land. Uh, so the northern polar ice cap, if you could imagine, you know, think about the uh, oh the uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank here. What's the ship that got sunk by the iceberg? How can I not remember that? Titanic. The, Titanic. Titanic right. Just think about the Titanic. The, thanks, Joe. So the ti- <laughs> right. Thanks, Joe. Seven eighths of an iceberg is underwater, as is the northern polar ice cap. So as it's as it's melting. Uh, you know, it's displacing water, and you can do that experiment at home with uh, some ice cubes in a in a in a glass. Uh, put the ice cubes, mark the level. Uh, when the ice cubes melt, the level of the ice in that glass stays the same. And it's the same thing with the with the northern polar ice, and also the a lot of the Antarctic ice shelves that we hear about. Uh, there's all this wailing and gnashing of teeth when a large uh, ice shelf breaks off. It's the size of Rhode Island or Maryland or yeah, there was one last year. They said it was the size of Maryland. Did you see what Maryland looks like? It looked. I mean, how, really? Couldn't you pick, pick up pick a better state than Maryland than for, <laughs> for comparing the size? But you know, they always pick some state that it's the size of. Uh, but again, those ice shelves uh, when they break off and they end up melting again do not contribute to sea level rise because again those ice shelves are, are floating on water. Uh, so it's really it, it, the ice. Uh, Sea level's been driven from uh, the sea level uh, from the warming trend we've been in. And the warming trend we're in started in the year 1695, the, the most recent warming trend, uh, long before there were any uh, SUVs or coal-fired power plants. And, and the warming actually started, what we, we talked uh, 1695, but it really was, uh, if we look at, at glaciers, uh, across North America and Europe, we see the retreat really started 
in the early 1800s. And that's because it took that, that long for it to warm up enough so the summer ice melt would, would exceed winter ice loss. And it was really, since the early 1800s until now, we've seen uh, pretty, pretty stable uh, retreat of the glaciers and stable uh, increase in sea level rise. Well, you know, we're down to our last, inside our last five minutes. Your book is Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know, which they can find at your website. Very simple. It's the name of the book, inconvenientfacts.xyz. Greg, as soon as you get that app out, you know, get a hold of me. You got my number. Sure. Call me. You can you can walk me through the app, and we'll have you back on the show to introduce the app to the public. And matter of fact, uh, we got someone in the chat room, Sasquatch. I think he took a little umbrage. You made fun of Maryland. <laughs> so. Oh, I love Maryland, but it's oddly shaped. <laughs> and he has Sasquatch has to admit that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, Greg. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I want to thank you for joining us, and I wish you a great weekend out there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sam. Take care. All right, guys. All right, Gregory. Gregory, Gregory writes, uh, check him out, uh, inconvenientfacts.xyz. And we're almost down to the end of the month. And um, holy cow, I didn't put on the calendar who we have coming up on Tuesday. I know we got three different guests up on Tuesday, and I'll have to get that up on the show over the weekend. I know uh, Mark Reed is one of them, and I forget who the other two are. Um, but we will not have a show on November Second or on November 6th, it will be a pre-recorded show because I will be having surgery on my eye. Uh, but we will be back on the 9th, and we already have guests lined up on the 9th, and I don't have that calendar with me yet either. So I got a lot of, a lot of work to do when I take my little mini vacation. But that's all we got, Curtis, for today. Yeah, we can um, talk about the red wave when you get back. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Just remember, folks, get out November 6th and vote. Vote like a Democrat. I leave you with our closing song. Just don't song. vote Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> True. I'll leave you with the closing song, When the Roll is Called Up on Yonder. Until then, I say good night and God bless.